0: Let's pray together. We thank you for your new mercies this morning, Lord, that have brought us together. So we might be brought into your presence through song and praise. We might give you the worship that you're due from our hearts and from our lives. We might give to you that. We pray that you would now allow us to receive from your word. We pray that you would let it sit in authority over us We would say yes to all that it says for us and all that it means. Help us to ponder it. Holy Spirit, give us power to understand your word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. That's where we'll be for most of our time today. We will look at a couple other texts, but it's good to see you. Merry Christmas. So I imagine that some of you are... um, with us for the first time, you're back. We're so glad that you're back. Maybe college students that are away and you're back home and so we're glad to have you back or perhaps you're in town to see family and so we're so glad. Uh, you haven't been with us through Advent so let me kind of catch you up uh, and I'll do it this way. You may know this test. and Has anyone seen this test? This is called the, the Pelly- robson test. Anybody seen this or taken this? This is what doctors use to test your ability to detect contrast. So can everybody see the N in the top left corner? Yes, awesome. If you can't see that, don't drive home today, okay? We're glad you're here. Give your keys to somebody else. Go ahead and do it right now, right? And as you make your way across and then down to the right, obviously the contrast between the background and the letters themselves get smaller and smaller so that you get down to that last row and really you're just looking at a blank white sheet of paper, it would seem, right? So uh, I'll let you guys go home. You can Google that. You can take that test and see how good you are. See if you can get all the way to the end. But the thing that that test is meant to show us is that if you can't detect contrast, you can't see very well, right? And so in order to see things well, you need to be able to detect contrasts. That's why if you are driving down the road at night and someone's walking on the side of the road and they're wearing all black, it's very hard to what? To see them because there's no contrast between them and the night sky around them and their surroundings. So contrast is this necessary thing. Well, we've been kind of pressing into that idea, whether you knew it or not, over the course of this Advent season for the last couple weeks, we have been thinking about the contrast between Jesus' last coming, the one that is coming, and his first coming, the one that we celebrate every Advent the thing we call the incarnation, when God became man in Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger. You know, we believe that the incarnation has massive implications for our lives. If God has entered the world, it's easy enough to say, well, then that world can never be the same. If the God who made it would actually enter into it and become part of that creation, logically, I think we can kind of understand that that makes a big difference. But there's, it's often that we as believers, or perhaps those of you who are not followers of Jesus, fail to recognize all of the implications of the incarnation, and they are many, yes? That if God has entered into the world, then our lives can really never be the same. And so we've been trying to think about the implications of the incarnation by seeing the contrast between Jesus' first coming and his last coming. So for instance, in week one of this series in Advent, we talked about the fact that Jesus came into ordinariness, that he left behind majesty and entered into an ordinary existence. We saw that Jesus... Isaiah would prophesy about him that he would have no form or majesty that people would be drawn to him. There's nothing about his physical appearance that said, this is a king. This is one that is God in the flesh. He entered into a very ordinary existence. In fact, to parents who were poor, into an impoverished state, into a place where it was of no reputation, Bethlehem and then Nazareth where he was raised were just places of no repute. There wasn't anything about his background that caused people to say, wow, isn't he something? But we recognize that it's one thing to to see the ordinariness of Jesus, but when you understand that that one who came into such commonness, into such ordinariness, was actually the one who was majestic from eternity past. And when you see his majesty, we looked at Revelation chapter 1 and we saw this description of Jesus in his second coming and how he'll reveal himself to be one of remarkable majesty. That contrast makes a difference, doesn't it? Seeing the contrast between those two things. And so then we looked at the contrast last week between Jesus entering into weakness uh, and the power that he had possessed from eternity past. Now we understand that Jesus in becoming human didn't actually lay down the power of his divine nature, but he did take up weakness, the weakness of human nature. And one of the implications of that, friends, I would just say to you, is if God has been willing to condescend, to become weak, so by becoming one of us, then what he's done is he's taken up not just weakness in a general sense, he's taken up our weakness, our vulnerability, our frailty. We have finite minds, finite resources, finite years to live, right? We, we are beings that are marked by temporality. Nothing about us is final. Nothing about us is, is you know, uh, eternal in, in the human sense until Jesus redeems it and then makes it eternal. But the thing... What's so remarkable about that is not that he just took up sort of a a weakness generally, it's that he, by becoming weak, said, "I'll, I'll take your weakness. I'll enter into your experience, which is really incredibly powerful when we understand that. But even more powerful is to realize that the one that took up weakness is the one who possesses all power. It's the one who possesses every shred of power. Do you know that any power you possess is really on loan from God? He has shared it with you. It's his, it's not yours, but he shared it with you. The power to speak, the power to breathe, the power to move and live, the power to convince someone of something, the power to love, the power to receive. Every power you possess in your life is a power that you have on loan from God. Now, this week we'll look at one more contrast and that contrast is between, uh, in Jesus' first and last coming, is between His worship and his rejection. So we say it this way. In in the incarnation, Jesus chose to lay down worship and to take up rejection. Jesus chose to lay down worship and to take up rejection. And I I want you to see the contrast between the worship that Jesus is due, the worship he is owed by the created world, and the rejection that he chose to take up. So we'll, we'll do this in two parts. Let's, let's ask first, what kind of rejection did Jesus take up? I mean, what do I mean when I say that Jesus was rejected in the incarnation by becoming human? That that meant taking up rejection. And then what kind of worship was he owed? So let's ask those two questions. Let's start with the first one. How was Jesus rejected when he came into the world? Well, When I say that Jesus was rejected, I mean that he had a life that was marked by rejection, that one of the major themes of his life was rejection. Not not simply that he was sort of rejected here and there, but that there was a growing rejection that took place in Jesus' life, and that was intentional, and I'll show you what I mean. In Isaiah chapter 53, now I told you to go to Revelation 5, so don't flip, stay there. But we'll put Isaiah 53 on the screen, and I just want you to look at these two verses. This is a prophecy written 700 years before Jesus ever lived, and it says this, Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men. So there's that word, rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. All right, so two things I want you to see there. Number one is if that's a prophecy written 700 years before Christ came to live, talking about who he would be, and what his life would be like, then the rejection that he endured was not accidental and it's not as if Jesus didn't know he was taking it up when he became human. He knew when he came into the world, rejection was going to be the theme of his life. He knew it because it had been foretold and he was the one that foretold it through the prophet Isaiah. Now, lest we think, okay, well, if he knew it was coming, then he was prepared for it, right? And somehow we might lessen the value of it, but recognize that when you are going to endure something of great difficulty, knowing it's coming and still choosing to move towards it is a marker of how valuable the choice is that you're making, yes? Think about a soldier on the battlefield who knows what stands in front of him is perhaps almost certain death, and to still move forward in that battle, although it may be daunting, is heroic, yes? It's absolutely, stunningly heroic. Then Jesus, in knowing the rejection that he was facing, still came into the world and still move towards that rejection, no matter how daunting it was. So that's the first thing I want you to see. This was not something Jesus took up in a sort of last minute way. He took it up knowing it was coming. He moved towards it. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus' rejection talked about here. It's not just that he was rejected. Uh, It's not just that we rejected him as if to say... Hey, we think God is like this, and you don't repre, you know, you, we don't think you represent God. Or, sorry, let me say it differently. We think you represent God, but we don't want God. The kind of rejection that Jesus took up was the rejection to say, We don't think you represent God. The one who is God in the flesh, we said, You're smitten by God, Isaiah 53 says. You're rejected by God Himself. So, His very nature, and His very nature being God, the rejection he took up was to be disassociated from God, to have people say, you don't actually represent God. And in fact, God's judgment is upon you. And in fact, God's judgment would fall upon Jesus, but not for his own sin. Now, that's the first thing we see. But the second thing I want you to understand is that Jesus' rejection in his incarnation, in his first coming, was complete. And what I mean by complete is is really something like, it was thorough, it was again and again and again. So let me show you, the Gospels really paint a picture of increasing measures of rejection in Jesus' life from beginning to end. Now we've been in a series in the Gospel of John before we entered this Advent couple of weeks here and we're gonna to return to that again in the new year but I want you to see let's look at the gospel of John just a couple chapters and then I'm gonna jump over to Matthew because it does a really good job when we get towards the cross of Jesus of showing us these kind of concentric circles it, almost like if you throw a rock into a lake what happens you get the ripple effect, right? There's, there's a growing measure of ripples and they go out. The rejection of Jesus in his life was sort of like that rock in the pond. It begins small and it grows throughout the course of his life. So John chapter five, verse 18. After healing a man who couldn't walk on the Sabbath, couldn't walk for 38 years, Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders. So we begin there in John chapter five. That's the first rejection we see in the ministry of Jesus. The religious elite look at him and they say, ah. He's healing on the Sabbath. We don't think he's of God. In fact, we're gonna kind of measure him a little bit, but we're gonna gonna put him off as one who doesn't represent God. And we're the ones in the know. We're the religious elite. We're the ones who determine whether someone represents God or not. So the first rejection is from those religious leaders. That's John chapter five. One chapter later, John chapter six, verse 66. Great crowds had begun to follow Jesus uh, they'd enjoyed his teaching and then they'd seen him multiply the fish and the loaves if you're familiar with the story, right? He turned a little bit of food into a whole lot of food and the crowds really loved it and they started to gather around him and to follow him. But he starts to teach them and he teaches them some hard things. And when he teaches those hard things, the crowds begin to go away and he has a conversation with his disciples. He says, do you wanna go away too? We get this beautiful profession. Well, where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. But the crowds have gone away now, so the religious leaders reject him. Then the crowds reject him in John chapter 6. It's almost as if John wants us to pick up on a theme here. Then in John chapter 7, we find an even greater rejection. In John chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus' own family rejects him. His brothers are saying, hey, you need to go up and do this thing or that thing if you're going to be recognized as the kind of religious leader it seems like you want to be recognized as. And when you read it at first pass, it seems as if what could be happening is that his brothers could be saying, hey, we really think that you're this great religious leader. You should go and get other people to recognize this, so you should go to Jerusalem. But in fact, John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us the reason they're telling him is almost like they're taunting him because they themselves don't believe, John chapter 7, verse 5 says. They told him he should go up and prove himself basically because they themselves didn't believe that he was. So his own family rejects him and his claims about his life and who he was and his mission in the world. So that's John chapter five, John chapter six, John chapter seven. In other words, every chapter, John is making a point to show you a greater rejection that Jesus is facing. Now go to Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew picks up on John's theme. And when we get near to the cross, nearer to the end of Jesus' life, Matthew 26 is this chapter where there are three rejections in about 60-something verses. And Matthew, again, is saying, I want you to see how thoroughly the rejection was of Jesus in this world. So first, in Matthew 26, we begin with Judas, who betrays Jesus. And Jesus sends him out to go and partake of his betrayal. That's the first betrayal we see. So the first rejection is by one of his disciples. Then we go a little bit further and the next conversation that happens is the conversation with Peter. Remember this conversation? Peter says, I will go with you all the way to your death. And what does Jesus say? Before the, crow, before the cock crows three times, you will have rejected me, right? You will have rejected me three times tonight. So he's predicting Peter's betrayal and his rejection. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 26 we find all the disciples in the garden with Jesus and the soldiers come to arrest him and where do the disciples go? To defend him? No, they flee. So in one chapter all of his disciples have left. Those who he knew would betray him, well he knew all of them what all of them would do, but the one who intentionally betrayed him, the one who didn't want to betray him but ended up because of fear, betraying him and renouncing him, and then all the disciples who fled and left. So now we've seen that he's rejected by the religious leaders. He's rejected by the crowds. He's rejected by his own family, and now he's rejected by the men who were his closest friends in the entire world, who had left everything to follow him, and in the moment of greatest need, he's abandoned. And then finally, The culmination, the capstone of Jesus' rejection in his incarnation, in his earthly life is in Matthew chapter 27 verse 46 when Jesus on the cross cries out to his father, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 there and what he's saying is, now even the Father has turned his back on me because he bore the sins of humanity on the cross rather than the eternal fellowship with the Father that he had always known and the perfect relationship that they, had, that they had existed in as the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past, never knowing anything but perfect fellowship. In that moment, the Father turns his back on the Son and there's a separation and yes, a rejection by the Father of the Son the most complete of all rejections. Now, do you see what I mean when I say Jesus' life was marked by an increasing rejection? It's one after another, after another, after another. You see, the incarnation meant rejection. Now, look, friends, don't minimize. Don't minimize the agony of rejection and isolation and abandonment. They are an emotional and a psychological terror When we consider Jesus had known a more perfect form of of fellowship and communion with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past than any other living being ever has, we can understand even greater the torment, the rejection by the Father represented to him. But let's think about this for just a moment because doctors, scientists, point us to the realities and the outcomes of being isolated. Do you know this? Let me give you an example. In November of 2018, a man named Rich Alotti, this is him, Rich is a professional gambler and he took a bet that he could live in complete isolation for 30 days. And by complete isolation, here's what he meant. A small room, no light, only a refrigerator with some food, a bathroom and a bed, that's all he had. No contact, no phone, no, no, nothing to entertain, no even stimulation visually because the room was dark. He was doing it to try and win $100,000. Do you think he made it? He made it 20 days. That's about 18 days longer than I would make it, I think. He made it 20 days in complete isolation. Do you know why he had to stop? He began to hallucinate because of his isolation and his deprivation. You see, we weren't made for isolation, friends. Do you know that? We weren't made, now... You know, scientists always try and pin an evolutionary cause on these things and say, well, we were made because we need people around us to protect us. We have a tribe and then they'll go to war with us if somebody else attacks us or whatever. But we know as believers that the real reason why we weren't made for isolation is because we're made in the image of a God who is triune, who's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship for all of eternity. And if we're made in that image, then we're made for a relationship with him first, but also with one another. We weren't made to live in isolation. And so when we find ourselves in isolation, and particularly isolation that's caused by rejection, see, Mark did it for a bet, right? It was for a bet. It wasn't wasn't for any reason of, he wasn't rejected by anybody. But when we experience isolation, particularly as a result of rejection, then the thing that we understand is that this is counter to the very way our souls were made is counter to the very thing we need to thrive in our existence. Listen, doctors have found that this, these are the results of isolation. There are physical and mental effects like higher blood pressure, weakened immune system, making it susceptible to disease. It affects our attention and our logical and verbal reasoning. In other words, if you're isolated long enough, you'll forget how to talk well. Our ability to process information and we become susceptible to depression, and many other dangers. Isolation is dangerous. Now, listen, add to that that the rejection of Jesus, the rejection for Jesus, was not just a loss of relationship, but a forfeiture of worship. And here's what I want you to understand. When we talk about that Jesus took up rejection, right, We could, what we could have said today is that he took up rejection and he laid down relationship, right? And all these broken relationships, relationship with the Father, broken because of our sin laid upon him. And that would have been accurate. And we would have understood that, you know, we all endure rejection at points, right? In fact, rejection is something all of us deal with. And we usually move past it, move through it. And how do we move through it? We move through it by finding another group to belong to, right? How do we deal with rejection? Finding someone who accepts us, right? So when we talk about the thoroughness of Jesus' rejection, that it was everywhere, I want you to understand that he was completely isolated, completely alone, it was not as if he had somewhere else to turn to find acceptance. You and I deal with find rejection from one group of people. We move to another. Hopefully, prayerfully, we find a people, and let me say, church, we should be that people, where people are welcomed and received and loved. And that's how we handle rejection. Jesus' rejection was so thorough there was nowhere else to turn. Not even the Father. Complete An utter, agonizing isolation. That's what Jesus took up. But when he took it up, he wasn't just laying down friendships. He didn't just let go of the right to have friends and to be in community and fellowship. Do you know what Jesus was laying down? He was owed worship by every being who encountered him. Not just, hey, we like you. He was owed unadulterated, unadulterated, pure, undying, unfaltering, unfading worship from every creature with whom he came in contact. And he took up rejection. So it's when we begin to see the contrast, remember the contrast between what Jesus laid down and what he took up that we begin to see the the Real meaningfulness of the rejection that he endured. So, now let's do that. Let's talk about what was the worship that Jesus laid down. If the rejection that he took up is what we've described, then let's examine what is the worship that he laid down. Now, let's look at Revelation chapter 5, where I have you if you brought your Bibles today. One of the greatest pictures of worship of Jesus in his return and his coming that exists in the scriptures. Here's how it's described. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So listen, can I explain something to you? My friends who you're not followers of Christ, I just read the Bible there. That's all I did. And people start to applaud. And you hear amens. And some of you are stifling your amens because you're way too Pennsylvania Dutch. <laughs> right? Just let this Texas boy put a little, you know, southern hot blood in you, okay? I love my Pennsylvania Dutch. I really do. All right? Really and truly. Can I just say to you, do you know why that happens? Do you know why you read the scriptures and people go, yes? It's because, here's what's happened. When we came to know Jesus, he put his spirit in us. And the spirit that's in us is the same spirit that wrote those words and revealed them to John. So he'd write them down for us. And so when we hear it, something goes off in us like a tuning fork goes off. Something in us says, yes, that's exactly what should happen. The one being talked about there is the one I want my whole life to be spent in praise of. I want to be in that place and I wanna watch that. I don't just wanna watch it, I wanna participate in it. I wanna say worthy, worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor and blessing and power. You see, I get that if you're not a Christ follower, if you're not a Christian, that seems weird that we would have that kind of a visceral reaction to just somebody reading something. But we want you to understand the reason we have that reaction is because that's about our king. And he is precious to us. You know, we go and we sit at football stadiums and we scream our heads off. And we yell at referees and we're pretty passionate when someone takes a ball and moves 10 yards down a field. And we think to ourselves, yes, did you see that? It's amazing. One day, one day, we will see what's truly worthy of worship. How good is our Lord to give us a vision of it now? You can see it. You see, the vision there. You have to kind of back up a little bit to see what was taking place. In Revelation 4, we're introduced to these four living creatures that are unlike anything you've ever, ever, ever seen. One like an eagle, one like an ox, one like a man, one like a lion, but they have wings and they have eyes all over the wings as if to say they're constantly watching for new ways to worship the Lord. And these 24 elders with these crowns on their head and they're constantly bowing down and throwing their crowns before the Lord as if to say, anything we have of value, it belongs to you. Anything, we have a value, belongs to you. Don't crown us, let us crown you, all the crowns. You don't just deserve a crown, you deserve all the crowns. Let us give them to you. See, that's the scene that we've entered into. And in it, we see that the one who took up rejection was worthy of some really amazing things in worship. I just wanna point out three to you, okay? We could do many, many more. I wanna show you that in this scene, this vision of what will come, what we're seeing is that Jesus is owed worship as a wise judge. He is owed worship as a loving savior. And he is owed worship from every living creature that exists. Those are the three things that I want you to see in this passage. So the first, let's talk about the first one. He's owed worship as a wise judge. See, the thing you might not recognize is at the beginning of this vision, the beginning of this scene, it says that John has begun to weep. And why is he weeping? Because there's no one that they can find who's worthy to open these scrolls. Well, what are the scrolls? The scrolls represent God's plan for the world. There's no one that can undo the seals and open the scroll so that God's plan can go forward. And it's not until the lamb who is first born uh, called the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and then very quickly, the lamb who was slain, it's not until he's seen that there's it's understood that there is one who's worthy to open the scrolls. But what you might not catch is if you don't keep reading in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 and 8, what we find out is that the scrolls that are open do involve uh, bringing forth God's plan into the world at the end of all things. But Uh, the largest part of that plan that is discussed there in the opening of the scrolls is God's judgment upon evil. It's God's judgment upon wickedness. So when the lamb is worthy to open the scrolls and to undo the seals, what we're hearing there is not he can make God's plan go forward, we're hearing he's able to usher God's judgment into the world for evil. Now I know for some of you that's a hard kind of pill to swallow, but could I just say to you, you do not want a God who will not judge evil in the end. You don't want a God who will allow evil to just go unchecked. But the mercy of God is such that anyone who performs evil, including you and me, who would turn to Christ can have their evil paid for by him. Evil will be dealt with in one way or another. God's judgment and wrath will will fall upon, in the end, the person who performs evil or it will fall upon his son for the person who has performed evil. One of those two things will happen for all of us. So the first thing that we know from Revelation chapter five is that he's being worshiped as a wise judge. But of course the irony is when he came into the world, the perfect wise judge was was judged himself, was placed under judgment. Now, The thing I want you to recognize, the themes of worship in Revelation chapter five are themes of worship that have been owed to Jesus and been given to Jesus from eternity past. And he laid them down for the time that he was incarnate, for the time he was in the world. The themes of worship in the Old Testament, if you go through it, are very similar to the themes of worship we find in Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter five. That God is worshiped as a wise judge, as a holy one, as a creator, as a loving savior, Those four themes are pervasive throughout the worship of God in the Old Testament. So we find Psalms, like Psalm 27, which says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, right? God saves. So as a member of the triune Godhead, Jesus had been receiving this worship that we see in Revelation 5, albeit in a less full form because it wasn't seen how the plan of redemption was going to be worked out. We're seeing it in Revelation 5, so the worship is fuller. It's more complete. But the same themes have existed in Jesus' worship from eternity past. He's been worshiped as part of the triune God all along in those ways. And now it's come to its sort of head, if you will, to its completion. But the one who is the, the wise judge was judged. Think about the moment in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63 through 66, when Jesus is on trial. It says, Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemies. You see, he understood Jesus was claiming to be the judge. He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. The one who is the judge came into the rejection of being judged. It's remarkable. Look, this is a silly example, right? But it's, it's something that's a little bit like when your kids who are four and seven and nine, I'm not naming any names here, all right? When they're telling you how to drive. Right? My son who is four, we have him seated directly behind the driver's seat because we had for a time moved him over where he had an angle towards the driver's seat. And every time we got in the car, he would correct where my hands were on the steering wheel. He would say, daddy, 10 and two. I was like, I don't know who taught him 10 and two. I was like, I'm fine, I'm good. I got one up here. No, dad, 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 10 and two. I'm like, you don't drive. You are four. Your feet can't reach the pedals in the steering wheel at the same time. I've had enough. Right, silly example, but for the ones who have no business passing judgment, to judge the one who is the ultimate wise judge. I kind of like that comparison for my driving. It's a good metaphor. The second thing we see is that Jesus is owed worship not just as a wise judge, but as a loving savior. And we see here in Revelation chapter five, let me just take you back to it in verse nine, there's the new song that these creatures are singing and it says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Love that. So what do we see there is that he's worthy of worship because he saves. In his love, he saves. Anyone who would come, he'll receive. It could be you today. Recognize you've rejected the offer of Jesus to come and receive his salvation through his love. But he offers it to you. You don't have to reject him any longer. You can receive him and come and be among his worshipers. But rather than being worshiped in his incarnation when he lived, rather than being worshiped as a loving savior, Jesus was insulted as one who was too weak to even save himself. Do you remember this moment on the cross? In Mark chapter 15, verse 30 and 32, we find these words. The religious leaders saying to him, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The rejection of Jesus is so thoroughly complete that it's remarkable. The one who can save is mocked as though he cannot even save himself. And then finally, we see that Jesus is owed worship from all living things. So almost as if to reverse what we said. Now revisit with me what we looked at when we looked at the Gospels, right? The concentric circles of growing rejection throughout Jesus' life, yes? It just grew and grew and grew, so there's this major theme of his life. It's almost as if, uh, in Revelation 5, it's almost as if God wants to impart through John that that is absolutely being completely reversed, Where there was concentric circles of growing rejection, now there's concentric circles of growing worship. So you can imagine, you know, if you think of this like a film that we're watching, and Revelation is a book that's meant to be pictured in your mind, not just sort of read in words. You're supposed to see a picture. It's almost as if the camera has zoomed in really tight at the beginning of Revelation 5. And what we see is around the throne, these four living creatures that I described to you. Right? And, and they're worshiping, and the camera's got them. And then it backs up just a step. It gets a little wider, and we see these 24 elders now around the throne. And they're worshiping him. They're adding their worship into the equation. And then the camera pans out a little bit, maybe a lot, because the next thing we see is it's not just these four living, crazy looking creatures, and it's not just the 24 elders. Now, who's worshiping? Myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels the mightiest warriors in all creation have gathered to worship. And each time the camera pans out a little bit, we see new worshipers. So we've gone from the four living creatures to the 24 elders. And then from then we go to the myriads of myriads of angels. And then, as if that's not enough, because it's not enough, the next thing we see is the camera backs up and we see that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and oh, by the way, in case you missed it, in the sea... I'm not even sure how you talk under the sea to worship Jesus, but maybe you blow bubbles in worship of him. I don't know. But every living creature is now engaged in the worship of the lamb. Do you see how the circles have grown as the camera pans out? See, what John wants us to see, what God wants us to see there in Revelation is that this is the kind of worship that he's worthy of. See, when he came into the world, he was increasingly rejected by people who should have worshiped him. But when he comes again, he will be worshiped by every living creature. Now listen, one final piece of good news here, because the story of Jesus' rejection is not just this. It's not Jesus laid down worship that he had an eternity past and took up rejection. The story is Jesus laid down worship that he had an eternity past And he took up rejection so that he could take up worship again in its fullest and final form. That's the great news. The worship that's coming for him is a fuller and richer and more complete worship than has existed. And it's coming. And it will encompass all. Which is the beauty of it. So now, what are the implications for us? Let's just think for just a a quick moment. Because I said... What, we, what we've wanted to do each week in thinking about the incarnation is not just go, oh, well, here's this contrast, but to understand that that has implications for our lives. That the fact that this is the nature of his incarnation, that he was ordinary, that has implications for our lives. The fact that he laid down worship has implications for us, and that he took up rejection. So here's two of them. Number one, and probably the most obvious, is just this, and if I can say it as frankly and as kindly as I can we have to choose whether to reject or worship Jesus. Every single one of us. Friends, I I, I need you to hear me. Every single one of us must choose whether to reject Jesus or whether to worship him. What he experienced in his life, in the world, that rejection is still at work today in our world. And every one of us has to make that choice. No one can make it for you. No preacher can talk you into it. You have to choose, each one of us do. Jesus was rejected in spite of having a right to all people's worship. Now listen, if we reject him, we need to realize that we're not just rejecting a good person, we're rejecting one who has a claim on our worship. He has a right to it. And I want you to wrestle with that. Like if you're in that place of saying, I don't, I don't believe, I, just, I want you to wrestle with that fact because I want you to understand it. The one you're rejecting is not just a good person who would be, it would be wise for you to worship. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords and he has a right to your worship. He has graciously died on your behalf so that you might give him your worship freely. You might offer it to him because your heart is compelled. You sense his spirit moving in you and among you. That's his graciousness to allow that, but he will have the worship. He will have it, he has a right to it. The second thing I need to say there is this. Anything other than worship is rejection. I need to make sure you understand that. Anything other than worship of the lamb who was slain is rejection. It's it's not enough to honor him as a good person or a wise teacher. It's not enough to be sort of benevolently indifferent, you know, oh, I don't, I don't reject him, I just don't think about him. Anything other than worship is rejection. The second thing, the second implication for us that I would point us to today is that we should be people who live to replace the rejection of Jesus with the worship of Jesus you know if he experienced rejection in this world and that's still happening today then those of us who call on his name those of us who consider ourselves among his worshipers should live to see more and more of his rejection replaced with more and more of his worship and what that means is living in such a way that you live your worship in a in a public sense you know there's lots of things in our christian lives that we're told to do quietly we're told to serve quietly not for recognition of ourselves. We're told to give generously of our money towards gospel causes, and we're told to do that quietly in a way that we're not showy about it and saying, hey, look at me, and look what I've done, or that we would get credit for it or attention to it. There's lots of things in the Christian life. When we pray, we're not to be showy and ostentatious in our prayer. We're to hide ourselves away in in our prayer closet and talk to the Lord like we talk to a father. But worship is not one of the things we're told to do quietly. Worship is not one of the things we're told to do privately, we do worship privately, but we also worship what, church? Publicly. That's why we ga- one of the reasons we gather to worship. We gather together to sing together. We don't gather together and all put on headphones and have our own private worship session, right? Just in my mind, okay, I, uh, what, what song do you have? I have this song, I like this one, okay. We don't do that. We sing together because our worship is meant to be public and part of our worship being public is that all those who hear it would say there's a group of people who are insane about their love for Jesus. They just absolutely adore him. You and I need to be known as people in our workplaces, and our neighborhoods who just can't get enough of Jesus. They seem to talk about him a lot. They seem obsessed with him. I think they're a little crazy. They're really kind, but they are off their rocker about Jesus. They just love him. You just can't get enough of him. I mean, at the end of the day, look, we come every week and we try and sort of build out our understanding of the Christian life together and think through the scriptures. And some things we make really complex. Can I just make it really simple for you? Grow every day more in love with Jesus. And express that love in your obedience, express it in your character, express it in the way you think, express it in the choices you make. But at the end of the day, it comes down to loving him first and most. Don't make that complex. Please don't make it complex. Keep that very simple. All of his commands are life-giving. Understanding and he, he is beyond all that we could fathom. And so understanding him takes study and rigor and it takes prayer and time with him. All that's really, really good. But please keep at the center of that. When you wake up in the morning and go to pick up the scriptures, you are there to meet with your king so that your heart would grow in love with him and as your mind is informed, and as your will is shaped, that's what happens. But keep it it simple in that sense, if you will, right? We are to be a people who replace the rejection of Jesus with the worship of Jesus. And one way to do that, by the way, is to fill up your worship, the character of your worship with the kind of things we just read here in Revelation chapter five. Know how he's worshiped and will be worshiped in the scriptures, and then worship him in that way. Worship him as a wise judge. Worship him as a loving savior. Worship him as holy. Worship him as the creator of all things. Fill out your worship with what the scriptures talk about, how the lamb is worshiped. And as you do that, you'll find that you're replacing rejection of areas of your own life where perhaps you've kind of pushed Jesus off and out. You'll be inviting him in. And you'll do that in your relationships and in your family and your coworkers' lives. Let's pray together. So, Lord Jesus, we, we turn now, having heard your word, and we just wanna respond to it with worship. We even wanna sing a song to you that's very similar to what we've just read about you in Revelation five. Thank you that your word informs us of the kind of worship that you're worthy of. Help us to be a people that give you that kind of worship in increasing measure. And my prayer for myself and my people, Lord, would be that every day we would our worship of you would grow. It would grow in its sincerity, it would grow in its rigor, it would grow in its passion, it would grow in the knowledge of that worship, that we would grow and grow and grow so that you get more and more and more of the kind of worship of which you are worthy and of which you have a right to claim that you'd get it from us. Now would you receive it in your mercy. Thank you for your mercy that you receive worship from us as imperfect as we are. We thank you that you receive our praises. So we give them to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.